Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, so I am here with James Rahm, who is an author, reviewer, and professor of classics at Bard College in New York. He specializes in ancient Greek and Roman culture and civilization. His work has appeared in the New Yorker, the Wall Street Journal, and the London Review of Books, among many other publications. And his latest book is called The Sacred Band, 300 Theban Lovers Fighting to Save Greek Freedom, which I believe is just now coming out possibly today. Is that correct? That's right. Today is the day. Okay. Wow. Big day. Congratulations. I can't wait to read it. Um, so I guess starting out, would you just sort of give listeners a brief introduction to what the Sacred Band of Thebes was and why you chose to write a book about this subject? Sure. So first of all, the city of Thebes, and we're talking about Greek Thebes, so not to be confused with Egyptian Thebes. Right. Uh, Greek Thebes had always been a second-rate power under the thumb of either Sparta or Athens, which were the superpowers. And suddenly in the fourth century BC, Thebes became a superpower capable of holding its own or even defeating the Spartans who had never been defeated in an open field battle. And the reason for that change was principally their creation of the sacred band, Hmm. a military unit, 300 men composed of Uh, 150 pairs of male lovers fighting side by side so that they would protect one another, excel, do their best because they're trying to impress their beloved and motivated beyond anything that uh, Greeks had experienced. And it was their influence, their prowess that allowed the Thebans to defeat Sparta. Wow. 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 So we've been talking recently about Sparta on the podcast and in uh, so, their dominant period in ancient Greece. And so today we're talking about basically the, the army that defeated the Spartans and sort of ended their run, uh, which, is, which is kind of amazing to, to think about. And so can you talk a little bit about uh, where did the sacred band come from? Who formed it? What were its origins in ancient Greece? Sure. Um, so the Thebans had been under the thumb of Sparta, as I said, even to the point of being occupied for about three years, 382 to 379, by a Spartan garrison, a force of soldiers stationed on their Acropolis, controlling politics, ensuring that a pro-Spartan regime was in power, imprisoning any democratic dissidents, booting people out of the city if they didn't toe the line. So it was a very harsh, oppressive occupation for the Thebans. In 379, in a miraculous operation, what we would today call a covert operation, a group of 12 Thebans managed to sneak into the city in disguise as women and assassinate the heads of the pro-Spartan regime and then surround the garrison and have it booted out of the city, taking back 
Thebes for the Democrats. That meant that Sparta was coming back to get revenge because everyone knew that the Spartans wouldn't stand for that kind of humiliation. And the sacred band was created directly after the take back of Thebes as a way to fend off Spartan aggression to protect the city, protect the new democratic government, which was under dire threat. Okay, okay. So can we talk a little bit about how they were able to actually defeat Sparta and what that clash was like? Uh, was it, we talked about kind of the makeup of the sacred band and the personal romantic even connection of the soldiers were there technological advances? Kind of how were they able to actually defeat the Spartans and become sort of the superpower? So there were several pieces to that puzzle. Hmm. One is that the band was housed at public expense and drilled and kept in constant training. Hmm. So essentially they were a standing army. Very few Greek cities had a standing army, only Sparta really up to this time. Okay. Because um, most Greeks didn't consider it a uh, an acceptable way of life to be in right. the military full time, so uh, this was in effect adapting the Spartan model, creating a full time year round standing army of three hundred men. Mm. Then uh, they were employed in tactical ways, especially in the Battle of Leuctra, which was the big defeat of the Spartans eight years after their creation, they were put at the forefront of a very strong left wing. So your listeners may know that the Greeks always put their strongest forces on their right wing. Mm. That was considered the place of honor. Everyone had done it from time immemorial. The Thebans realized that in order to counter the strength of the Spartans, they would have to charge right at their strongest position by putting the sacred band and the huge uh, phalanx right on their left wing. In other words, matching strength against strength rather than strength against weakness. It showed, first of all, that they weren't afraid of the Spartans. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that they had enough power, enough military strength to break the Spartan line. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. Okay. So once they defeated the Spartans, were they basically then the, the, the top dog in ancient Greece at that point? And kind of how did that, how did that play out and how long did that period last? So usually the spirit, the period that's called the Theban hegemony, mm. the period when Thebes really was the superpower is only nine years long. 371, starting with the Battle of Leuctra and the defeat of Sparta, mm. to 362. So the reason it's so short is that Thebes didn't have a long tradition of leadership and generalship. It had not been a superpower before. The remarkable leader who brought about its transformation was a man named Epaminondas. Mm. he's really the hero of my story. He had vision of Theban greatness and also of an international order based on justice and fairness 
rather than on suppression of dissent. So he won a lot of uh, allies from other Greek cities who saw that there was a better way possible for the Greeks. He led the Greeks at Leuctra, led them against Sparta in three invasions of the Peloponnese that totally transformed the balance of power, robbing Sparta of its principal bases of support. But in 362, he was killed in battle at the Battle of Mantinea mm. by a random spear that just got through his defenses, hit him right in the chest. Wow. And that there was no leader to take his place of comparable stature. And so the Theban hegemony lasted only less than a decade. But Sparta was already knocked out as a superpower. So from 362 on, Greece was basically leaderless or had a, a rough equality of power among several different cities. Ah, I see. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit about the sacred band itself. And okay, so the makeup of the sacred band as 150 pairs of lovers. I think there's some debate over how that came about and is that historically plausible and sort of, you know, what is your takeaway in researching um, this book? Uh, because in my mind, I've read some about the sacred band. I can't wait to read your book to do a deeper dive, but it strikes me as, you know, maybe this was something that was um, kind of a theme within the sacred band, but maybe it's been exaggerated by certain sources. I don't know. I just, I'm just putting it out there to you. What is your belief and what does your research tell you about kind of the, the plausibility of that? Well, it seems entirely plausible to me mm. because uh, we know that Thebes had a unique gay-friendly culture or a culture that was supportive of erotic male unions. Right. Not necessarily exclusive. Maybe the men in the band were also married to wives. We don't know. Yes. But uh, we know that the laws and the culture of Thebes were uniquely supportive of male erotic unions. Several sources tell us this. And uh, Xenophon, who is one of these sources, uh, does say explicitly in his work Symposium, not Plato's Symposium, but a different Symposium, that uh, the Thebans and another city, Elis, in the Peloponnese, these two places stationed lovers side by side in battle. He doesn't call it the sacred band. He doesn't use that term, but he does attest as a contemporary eyewitness that uh, these two cities stationed lovers side by side in battle. So that seems to me to be fairly clear cut evidence. The mention, the, the name sacred band and the description of them as a core made up of lovers, that does come from much later in time than the events in which they took place. So that does leave some room for doubt in some historians' minds. Mm, okay, I wasn't aware of that contemporaneous source, but that does seem to add a lot of credibility um, to that account. Um, so was that something that was uh, basically unique? I mean, I know that there, I know that there were relationships and um, same-sex male relationships with, within kind of uh, you know, other groups and soldiers and things like that in training. And it was more common 
you know, in ancient Macedon, for instance, there's speculation that that may have been the case, um, that that kind of thing was more common or even encouraged. Was the sacred band, but I guess taken to that extent where you actually have these pairings, was that unique more or less within the kind of the major city states and stuff that we're aware of? Well, it was unique in that the Thebans seem to have been both, both members of the couple seem to have been mature military age men. Mm. We know that the Spartans also had a system of male pairing, pair bonding, but that was between an older and a much younger man mm. in which the younger man was considered a student as well as a lover and would often be pre-adolescent. Uh, king Agesilaus, who was the king of Sparta at this time, was part of such a couple. Uh, the hero Lysander, who won the Peloponnesian War for the Spartans, was his Erastes, was his older male lover. So um, the Spartans had a system like this. Other cities where we hear about pairing men pairing off in the military, but in the Theban case, it was institutionalized. And it was mature men in, on both sides. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So that helps, that helps kind of distinguish it from some of the other practices. So uh, I guess my next question is what happened to the sacred band? How long did it exist? And kind of what was the, what was the downfall or end of the sacred band? Well, that's a great question because that's really <laughs> the, the climax of my story uh, the downfall of the sacred band at the Battle of Chaeronea in 338. So they'd been on the scene for 40 years. According to Plutarch, they hadn't had a single defeat in that mm -hmm. time. We don't know what they were doing for part of that time because the sources are thin. But in 338, they took the field against Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, his son, who were threatening to dominate the central Greek world, and the Greeks were trying to keep them out. Athens lined up with Thebes at Chaeronea in Boeotia in northern Greece, and the sacred band were destroyed to a man by Alexander himself. And their mass grave has been found at Chaeronea with 254 skeletons of the 300 laid out in rows as if they were an infantry phalanx. Wow. Yeah, that's, I, I was, I was reading in, in the uh, description of your book a little bit about that archeological finding that happened maybe sometime in the 19th century. Um, have, have they done extensive work on kind of trying to confirm that? I, I, I remember reading a little bit about this a while back and there were some dissenters who thought maybe it, it may have been someone else possibly, but yet sometimes I see it referred to as sort of definitively, this is uh, the sacred band. So what is your takeaway on the archeological aspect of it all? And, and, uh, and, and how, how do we know with confidence that that would be the, the members of the sacred band? Well, we can't know absolutely. There's no inscription mm. on the mass grave or on the lion monument that sits atop it. And there's nothing in the burial itself that says sacred band. Right. We know that the sacred band were destroyed in that battle. We know it was a unique honor to be buried on the battlefield mm. because most soldiers who were 
killed in battle would be cremated and their remains would be sent home to their home cities. So this was a special burial set up for a special unit and topped by a monument to their prowess, the, the Lion of Chaeronea. Hmm. So everything about it suggests that it was the sacred band. It would be nice if there were 300 skeletons instead of 254, but there's speculation that there's an eighth row. The, the skeletons are laid out in seven rows. A normal infantry phalanx had eight rows. So perhaps there's an eighth row of skeletons beyond the perimeter that's been excavated, in which case the number would be much closer to 300. I see. I see. So it sounds like there's very compelling circumstantial evidence that this would be the sacred band. And I'm curious about the statue uh, that you're referring to, because I've seen photos online of the statue. And so it looks quite large. Uh, so there's an existing large statue of a lion, basically, that dates all the way back uh, to that time period. Is that is that right? Or was it ever destroyed and put back together or anything? Or it yes. just Okay. Yes, it was in pieces and totally buried until oh. the early 19th century. Oh, wow. And uh, actually, my narrative starts with the accidental rediscovery of the lion in mm. 1818, uh, when an Englishman who was traveling in Greece just happened to trip over one of the stones that was protruding out of the ground, dug around a little, and discovered the head of the lion. Then it was in fragments for most of the 19th century, it was finally reconstructed by the modern Greek state wow. right around uh, right around 1900. Wow. Okay. It's just, it's a very cool looking statue and we'll include a, a link to a photo of that in our article we post. Um, so I, I think my next question revolves around the subtitle of your book. It says 300 Theban lovers fighting to save Greek freedom. So uh, the aspect of saving Greek freedom, can you talk a little bit about that? And, uh, and, why, and why the book is called that. Okay. So the first threat to freedom that the Greeks faced was from Sparta. Mm. In the aftermath of its victory over Athens in the Peloponnesian War, the Spartans were a very oppressive force for most Greek cities. They installed um, juntas, boards of pro-Spartan puppet rulers. They imprisoned dissidents they did their best to impose a authoritarian government on central Greece and even into the Aegean. The Thebans by that time had become democratic and allied with Athens. So in the 370s and 360s, they were fighting to preserve democracy from the threat against the, opposed by Sparta. Then in the 340s and 330s, the threat came from Macedon which was attempting to impose its will on central Greece and prevent any dissent, any non-Macedonian government from holding sway. And it was at Chaeronea that the Theban band made its last stand against the Macedonians okay. to stand up for the autonomy of each city-state. And if I remember... There's a quote, um, some kind of a quote from Philip when Philip and Alexander defeated the sacred band, where they, um, where he honored, or they had a lot of respect for the sacred band, or they honored them after the battle. Is that correct? Yes. 
Philip supposedly rode over to Alexander's position and saw the corpses of the sacred band all piled up together and said something to the effect of uh, perish anyone who thinks anything shameful of these men. Mm. So that tells you that their homosexual lifestyle, if you like, was not universally approved of, mm -hmm. uh, that there were some who might think it shameful, but Philip was determined that their courage and their virtue should be the foremost uh, association. Mm, interesting. And if uh, and now I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, and I, I hope I'm getting this right, but I, I, uh, I remember that maybe Philip spent some time in Thebes when he was younger. Is that correct? And to what extent, uh, and Philip, we're talking about uh, Alexander the Great's father who helps kind of build the Macedonian empire that, or the Macedonian army, let's say, that then Alexander uh, took to expand across uh, multiple continents. So incredibly important figure in Greek history. Can you talk a little bit about what knowledge or inspiration Philip may have gotten from Thebes in the Sacred Band, that, um, if any? Yes. So that is a very interesting aspect of this period. Philip was a hostage at Thebes. He lived at Thebes mm -hmm. as part of a diplomatic arrangement in his teens before he became king. And he was there under the, uh, the Theban hegemony at the time of Thebes' greatest ascendancy. Mm. And he seems to have absorbed some of the lessons of Theban might, especially the use of an elite force stationed so that it would contact the point of greatest strength of the enemy line, mm. what has been called the cut off the snake's head strategy, that if you can attack the leadership and the strong point of the enemy line and knock that out, the rest of the line becomes useless. And that was the same strategy employed at Chaeronea and all of Alexander the Great's subsequent battles. He used his cavalry, not an infantry corps like the Sacred Band, but his companion cavalry to charge directly at the enemy leadership and try to cut off the snake's head. So that strategy seems to have been adapted from the one used by Thebes. Wow. So it's possible that these innovations being developed by the sacred band and, and Thebes uh, inf impacted the rise of, of Macedon. And then of course, this, you know, vast empire and, you know, kind of a dawning of an entirely new era in Greek history. Um, so Wow. Um, so, I, you know, it's an interesting uh, subject because we've been talking recently, like I said, about Sparta and, uh, and why Sparta is so venerated as the greatest warriors of ancient Greece. And today we have movies like 300 and kind of the Spartans are seen as the prototypical ancient Greek, you know, warrior. And yet among the general public, I would say the sacred band is not hardly known at all compared to Sparta. And so can, you know, and hopefully your book helps shift that. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, why do you think that is? What plays into that? Is it the period of time that, um, that the sacred band was a superpower and Thebes was a superpower? Is it prop, is it Spartan propaganda? Is it this aspect of 300 lovers and, and what's associated with that? What, what are your thoughts on, on why the sacred band isn't more well-known and associated? Cause they're the ones who defeated Sparta 
and helped kind of, you know, usher in this new age. So that's a great question. And there's a very specific answer. Our sources for the fifth century for the Peloponnesian War, for instance, hmm. are Thucydides and his contemporaries who um, paid a lot of attention to Sparta and Athens, but hardly any to Thebes. Then when we get to the fourth century, the time of Theban superpower, you have another source, Xenophon, who wrote the Hellenica, the only surviving contemporary account of this period. Xenophon was not nearly as good a writer as Thucydides and not nearly as fair a writer. He was fiercely pro-Spartan. Hmm. He thought of the Spartans as being the only power that was capable of leading Greece, and he hated the Thebans. So his Hellenica is so biased against the Thebans that he actually leaves out some of their major achievements, including the sacred band. Wow. Okay. So it kind of boils down to these handful of key sources and the, the biases that played into that and what they were covering. Um, wow. Exactly. So, okay. Okay. So what do you think, uh, um, ultimately the legacy of the sacred band is what should we what should kind of you know what are the big takeaways for for us in modern times well i think the the whole period is uh, fascinating for us in the modern world because it's a confused period when it's not clear where the leadership lies mm. much like in our world today it used to be that the us and the soviet union were the two superpowers and there was a bilateral world and everybody chose one side or the other. Now it's a multipolar world and American power is diminished and uh, smaller powers like, you know, what China used to be a small power. Now it's a superpower. Other states have risen from the, you know, from comparative obscurity to become major powers. Uh, it's a time of shift and change and adaptation. And uh, Thebes was highly successful for a time because it was able to adapt and innovate. Mm. And the Sacred Band was its primary innovation. Wow. So I guess my, my, one of my last questions here is in researching this book, I assume you came into it with a good amount of knowledge as a historian and all of that, but did anything surprise you as you were researching uh, and putting together this book that um, that you want to share? Well, I was most, mostly surprised to find that there's some very powerful women in this period. Mm. So my book includes accounts of some fascinating female figures, including uh, a woman named Frenny, who you may never have heard of, but you've seen a face that was inspired by her image. If you've ever seen uh, Botticelli's Birth of Venus, one of the most famous canvases in all of art history, it's been reproduced a thousand million times. And uh, the face on that image, on that painting was adapted from ancient artworks that were modeled on this woman, Phryne, wow. one of the great, great women of all Greek history. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I had not heard of that. Um, so I'll be interested in reading more. So again, I just want to remind listeners, we're talking to James Rom, whose book, The Sacred Band, 300 Theban Lovers Fighting to Save Greek Freedom, comes out today. 
it's we're speaking on Tuesday, June 8th. So you'll probably be listening to the show in the next day or two. So that's available on Amazon. Um, is there anything else that, that you want to add professor Rom, um, that we didn't cover? Uh, only that, um, the imagery in the book is of particular interest. The sketches of the tomb from the mass grave at Carinea, which were found only a couple of years ago by the Greek archeological service. They were drawn in 1880 when the tomb was opened. Since then it's been sealed. And this is the first time those images have been seen in print. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's an added reason to, to get the book. Very interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll obviously post links uh, to the show notes. We'll include links to the book, to your website. Is there any other place on social media or anything where listeners can, can stay in touch with you and follow any of your work? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, uh, just at James Rom. Um, so uh, yes, I'd welcome uh, an exchange of views. Great. Great. Well, again, I just want to say I really appreciate you talking to us. This is um, right at the core of what we're studying on this podcast and what I think listeners are interested in. Um, and uh, this book sounds excellent. I'm looking forward to reading it, and I hope that other listeners out there uh, get it as well. And thanks for thanks for taking the time to, to talk to uh, us today, and hopefully sometime in the future we can again. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.